So today we are wrapping up our series on dysfunctional families, uh, faithful God. So uh, just a little bit of a, I guess, a roadmap of what's going to happen over the next month. We're going to transition into October, which is our mission month. And so typically in, in mission month, we have one missionary who will come and they'll share what we've done this year. And I'm, I'm very excited about that. We've asked four different missionaries to come. And so every Sunday we'll have a different missionary come and, and share what they're doing. Um, part of that is there's just so much that God's doing all around the world, right? And it's, it's very exciting to hear. But also, I think for us to to be able to hear this is this is possible mission work, right? This is something that I could get involved with, uh, possibly. Uh, but next month we actually have a series of speakers, including our very own uh, Irving Chung. So he'll be preaching at the end of the month. Uh, but we are wrapping up uh, this series on dysfunctional family. And one last highlight, I will be taking a sabbatical. I just want to let you guys know, if you don't see me or my family around during the month of September, I will be taking a sabbatical, and hopefully you guys could pray for us. I think it, it, it's, uh, it's something that I've been thinking and praying about uh, for a while now, but there's, there's some things that I plan on doing that uh, hopefully I'll get around to. Some of it's just resting, of course, but um, there's a lot of writing and, and studying that I would like to do as well. Uh, so you could pray for, for us as a family as we take this sabbatical. Uh, I don't anticipate any issues to come up, but we have some great leaders here, so I'm sure uh, this church will be in good hands. So on to our sermon for today. We are family, right? That's the theme of this year. We are a family. It's not just a slogan. It's not just a theme. It is the reality of who we are as a church. If you have chosen to follow God, if God has changed your heart so that now you are sons and you, now you are daughters, we are literally brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And as a family over this year, hopefully you've gotten the idea that scripture tells us as a family, we are called to do certain things and to behave certain ways towards one another. We're called to love each other and forgive each other, care for one another, pray with one another, share with one another. And hopefully over the course of this year, you have seen that in your own life. Maybe you've taken steps towards reconciliation with someone. Maybe someone in your family. Or maybe someone in this church family. Maybe over the course of this year, you've, you've prayed with someone that you've never prayed with before. And, and we've, tried to, uh, we've tried to allow us to do that, whether it's through our, our uh, reunion lunches or through our communion, just to be able to pray as a family and say, hey, there are people here that care about you. I want to pray for you. But a question might come up, if we're a family, where does our obligation as a family end, right? Over this year, we've been encouraging different fellowships to get together, and so we know certainly as a church family, we should care for those in our small group, and maybe as a church family, we should care for those outside of our small groups, maybe in a different small group, but where does that obligation end? What about, what about Christians from another church? What is our obligation towards those Christians that go to CCIC or River of Life right? or, or Menlo Church or, or Westgate? What about those who might have different viewpoints than us, right? The, the Arminians or the Calvinists, the Egalitarians or the Complementarians. What about the Methodists? They're a completely different denomination. What's our obligation towards those who don't even hold the same teaching as us, those who are outside of our circles? What about like the Mormons, the Jehovah Witness, the atheists, the agnostics? And in our divisive day today, it's easy to say, this is my family. 
this is my tribe, these are my people, I will love these people, and everyone else is an other. And there are times we label and we identify so narrowly that we view everyone else as an outsider. And it's possible for us to so emphasize that this church is our family that we ourselves become dysfunctional to those outside, to our primary calling of sharing the good news, the love of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins to make disciples of all people. One day, a lawyer comes up to Jesus. You could read along in Luke chapter 10. One day, a lawyer comes up to Jesus, and he, he puts him to the test. And when Luke uses this word lawyer, oops, when Luke uses this word lawyer, he, he doesn't mean someone who's like a legal scholar, because in those days, a lawyer is someone who understood God's law. He understood the Mosaic law. He understood the rabbi's teachings on those laws. And so here's a person who understood God's laws. And, and he comes up to Jesus and he asks him the question, teacher, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? We don't really know why this lawyer comes up to Jesus to ask him this question. Maybe he's just going up there, uh, you know, to test wits with his up and coming rabbi. Maybe he's going up there to, to, to brag to his friends, I got the best of this rabbi from Galilee. Maybe like other religious leaders at, at the time, he wanted to trap Jesus into saying something that would get him in trouble. But he asked Jesus, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inher inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus could have responded and he could have berated this man. There's lots of answers he could have given. He could have said, what a stupid question. You're asking me a question about inheritance, and you're asking what can you do to receive inheritance. The nature of an inheritance is that you do nothing. But he, he, doesn't, he doesn't berate him. He responds with another question. He says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you understand the law that you studied since childhood? The lawyer responds with what is known as the great commandment. Every Jewish person would arise early in the morning and recite these verses, and the, this long, young lawyer dutifully responds with this answer, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds, good job. You've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Now, I, I'm imagining this lawyer hearing the response of Jesus might have felt a little crestfallen, might have been a little disappointed. He had come expecting a theological debate with this up-and-coming rabbi. He, he might have expected Jesus to, to give him a list of requirements that one must do. But Jesus doesn't give him a list. He says, Good job. Do this and you will live. And probably for this lawyer, he's pondering what Jesus says. He says, okay, well, you know, the first thing is you shall love the Lord your God. I, I've done this my whole life. Ever since I was a young boy, ever since I started studying the Holy Scriptures, I've kept all of those commands. I, every week I, I, I go to the temple and worship. Every week I, I make offering for my sins. I, 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 think, I think I'm okay. All right, so check. But there's another part 
to this commandment that gives him pause. He says, well, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I guess I, I love my neighbors, you know. Ezra and Sarah, they're good. They're nice. They live right next door. Their son's a little annoying. He's always chasing my chickens around. The guy down the street, you know, they still haven't returned our dishes. They never even said thank you. Huh. Not exactly sure if I love them. It's a little trickier. And so like any good lawyer, he moves to clarify the question. He, he moves to ask for definition. And he, he asks Jesus, he's like, huh, well, Jesus, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let, let's get down to the very specific. Who exactly is my neighbor? Who exactly do I have to love? Like, the guy to my right is good. The guy to my left is questionable. The guy behind me, I, you know, I, I don't love him, but he's not on my street. Is he not my neighbor? Who exactly do I have to love? Now, for the Jew of that day, actually, neighbors would include their immediate family. It would include their clan. And if you want to stretch it, if you really wanted to stretch that word, it might include the entire Jewish race. Gentiles clearly are not neighbors. And everyone knows that God hates the Samaritans. <laughs> in fact, uh, people uh, were called, people, the Jewish people would call the Samaritan dogs. They wouldn't even have to describe the person. They would say, oh, that dog. And everyone would understand they're talking about a Samaritan. So when the lawyer is asking this question, he's probably had in mind, of all of my neighbors that live in my neighborhood who are sort of related to me, who do I have to love? Do I have to just love the ones right next to me? or the ones on my street, or, or maybe, you know, the ones in my city, but certainly not the traitorous tax-collecting Jew. The devout Jew, I could understand that. Certainly not those who side with Rome, and definitely not the Samaritans. I mean, God hates the Samaritans. So Jesus, let me ask you this question. Amongst my clan, amongst my people, amongst my tribe, amongst my city, Amongst my neighbors, who do I need to treat with love? And we might be chuckling at, at the way this guy is asking the question. We might think, wow, this guy's so legalistic. But don't we do it too? There are times where we, are, we come face to face with God's word and what God requires and God's laws. And instead of trying to bend our lives to fit God's laws, we try to bend God's laws to fit our lives. We're told to forgive one another. And like the disciples, we say, well, how many times do I got to forgive them? We're, 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 we're told to, to tell the truth and not lie, but maybe just this once because it's super inconvenient right now. We're told not to steal. But what if it's for a good cause, Jesus? And in some ways, loving our neighbors we're told to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we ask Jesus, but which neighbor do I really have to love? There are times where we come face to face with God's requirements and God's laws, and instead of bending our lives to fit God's laws, we try to bend God's laws to fit our lives. 
Well, Jesus does something very interesting here. Instead of giving him a response of the, the theological or theoretical, he brings this lawyer down to the nitty-gritty of real life, where people are hurting, oppressed, abused, even murdered. And he tells him this story. He says, there's a man. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a common road. It's about 18 miles, about a half-day journey. A great elevation change, but people go on it. But amongst this road, there's also, it's also known for robbers and bandits and muggers, right? And so there's a man, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. If you were to ask, who is my neighbor, to that man lying on the side of the road, maybe in a pool of blood, desperate for help, probably the best candidate, the best two candidates for him, for a neighbor, would be a priest and later a Levite. You see, these men, of all people, because some Jews would forget, but of all people, they would be the ones who would recite every morning Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are the people who caused other people to recite these words. He couldn't have asked for two better neighbors to come along. And it's actually known commonly, as Jesus is telling this story, that for a lot of priests and a lot of Levites, those who work in the temple, if they did not live in Jerusalem, they would commonly travel this road back to their home in Jericho. Right? It's like people who live outside the bay, they, they have to come in. It's a very common uh, journey. And most priests and Levites would serve a two-week stint. So as you're listening to this story, as, as the, the lawyer is listening to the story, he's thinking either these men are just coming back from serving a two-week stint or they're, they're headed off to serve this two-week stint. And he's thinking th- this is a great candidate. But Jesus does the unexpected because the first of these two guys, the priest, he sees this guy who's half-beaten, close to death, and he sees him and he passed by on the other side. Some of us are thinking, who would do such a thing? Who would see someone who is hurting? Who would see someone who's clearly in need and just leave him there? But we do that sometimes, don't we? How many times have you driven down the freeway and see, you see a motorist stranded by the side of the road. And you look at them, and they're, they're clearly unable to do anything, and we just drive by. Or maybe it's at a grocery store. Or maybe it's at a, a supermarket. You see someone, and their hands are full, and all of a sudden, their, their shopping bag just explodes out of the bottom. Everything falls on the ground. I mean, I think for us, sometimes the kind gesture is we don't roll over their fruits with our carts. Or perhaps you see a classmate and they're holding books and homework and paper and they trip and everything falls. And they're left to pick up everything all by themselves and we walk by. Oh, but we have good reasons, we tell ourselves. We have good reasons not to help because we're busy. We, we, we have things to do. We don't want to be late to class. We don't want to miss our meetings. We don't want to be worried or accused of helping someone And then making it worse. Well, the priest might have had good reason too. The priest looks at this man. He's stripped. He's naked. The priest doesn't know who he is. You see, in ancient times, it's very easy to tell if a person, uh, what ethnicity he was by what he wore. 
and it also be able to that he would be able to tell what kind of person he was not just a jew or greek phoenician egyptian he would know oh this is a devout jew because of their dress and this priest does not see what this man is wearing because he was stripped naked and because he could not tell if he was a Jew or not. If he was a Jew, he had an obligation to help him. But because he could not tell, he had an unclear obligation. I'm not sure if I need to help them. I'm not sure if, if I, I'm required by God's law to help him or if I could just walk him by. Another reason the priest might have had is maybe this guy's dead, right? If this guy is dead, we know from the Old Testament that a priest who touches or any person who touches a dead body becomes unclean. But for a priest, it was worse because they would have to go through a week-long ritual. Now, if this priest was coming down from the temple, he had already served two weeks, that would mean he'd have to return to the temple, cleanse himself, go through this purification process for another week. His family would not see him for three weeks total. They couldn't take any of the offering from the temple for another week. And he didn't want to risk it. Or maybe... This priest saw that this man was lying in the road. He didn't know if he's dead or alive. He had no way of telling what kind of person this man was. Maybe he thought, if I carry this man back to Jericho with me and he dies on the way, people might ask questions. What are you doing with a dead man? <laughs> You're a priest. What, what are you doing with with uh, this guy on, on your donkey. I mean, clearly he was alive when you took him and, and now he's dead and maybe the family would come looking for him. My husband was alive the last time I saw him and now he's dead and he's with you. You owe me. Maybe his reputation would be ruined. We're not sure what he thought, but the truth be told, we're not that different, are we? Right? There's Christians today who desire to be holy, to des- who desire to be set apart for God, so much so that they set themselves apart from anything that might possibly defile them. It might be people we don't w- agree with. It might be people whose actions we consider unchristian or whose language offends us, whose lifestyle we consider immoral. And we're worried that if somehow we get involved in their lives, people might talk. If somehow we get involved in their lives, we might become corrupted or defiled. If somehow we get involved in their lives, it will be costly somehow. Somehow it will hurt our testimony. So there are times we cross a road and we keep on walking. The very people that are so desperate for our help, we're like the priests too sometimes, aren't we? Jesus continues on in the story. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he too passed by on the other side. Now, the second man that comes is a Levite. And so for a Jewish man listening to this, uh, this story, it's actually a very common trope. It's a, a, a priest, a Levite, and a layman. So the second person that comes, it's a Levite. A Levite is a person who's descended from the tribe of Le- Levi, and he helps the priest in the temple. If a priest is like an elder, a Levite is like a deacon. He he serves at the temple. Whatever was needed, that was their job. Their job was to make sure everything ran smoothly, right? There would be occasions where they would would teach the classes on, on what God's word says. 
And this Levite, he's coming down, and he, he's probably actually served with this priest for the two weeks in the temple. And he probably knows that the priest had just walked before him because it was during that same time. And he's coming down, and he sees this guy on the side of the road who's, who's possibly dead, and he's probably thinking to himself, huh, priest just walked by, but he left him there. I'm sure he had good reasons to leave him there. I mean, he probably thought about the defilement. He probably thought about the reputation. So maybe like priests like Levite. And he's like, well, I'm just following the example of the priests. Or perhaps he's thinking in his mind, you know, if I pick up this guy, it might make the priest look bad. If I bring this man on my donkey all the way home and people say, hey, the priest just went on this road like not half an hour ago, and, and you know, what happened? You know, what would people say about the priest? Or maybe he thought, the priest already went ahead to get help. Or, or somebody must have went ahead to get help. There's actually something called the bystander, uh, bystander effect. It's, it's very interesting. In 1964, when Queens, New York was maybe one of the most violent places to live in America, there was a young lady by the name of Kitty Genovese. She was attacked, murdered, right outside of her house. Uh, and then later on, police uh, would investigate, and they discovered that her neighbors, of, of her neighbors, 38 witnessed this attack and murder. But for a variety of reasons, as they started investigating, nobody got involved. Actually, we discovered later on one person tried to call the police, but they dismissed them. But nobody got involved. And some of the reasons they gave for uh, not wanting to get involved was they were tired. It was late at night. They were tired. They, some of them thought, well, this is just a domestic abuse. No big deal. Some of them thought, well, someone else would follow up. And so this was actually published in the New York Times, and it shocked this nation, causing this nation to ask what kind of people are we where we will allow a young woman to be beaten and murdered and not do anything about it? In fact, it's because of her death uh, that 911, as we know it today, uh, was created. Right? Before, you'd have to call the operator and they'd have to transfer you to police, but 911, uh, partly because of her death, was created. And perhaps the Levite had a early form of the Genovese effect or the bystander effect. He probably thought, well, somebody else is going to take care of it, and I, I don't really want to. So he goes by. And Jesus continues on in the story now. Now, like I said, the typical pattern of the story is a priest, a Levite, and a layman. A layman is just a person who would come to the temple and, and, and serve when he can. And so it shocks the listener, and it especially shocked the lawyer, when the third character is not a layman, the third character is not just a normal Jewish person. The third person is the most despised person a Jewish man or woman would consider. He was a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him down as animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan sees exactly the same thing 
that the priest and the Levite see, but his response was entirely different. In fact, when Jesus tells this story, he sees, but unlike the priest and the Levite, he has compassion. And he does something about it. He gets down next to this man. He gets his hand dirty. He pours oil and he pours wine and is commonly used in ancient times as a form of medicine. He bandages him up. He puts him on his own animal, brings him to the inn. He pays for that night. And, and he, gives, he tells the innkeeper, whatever you need to spend on him, spend it because I will pay the bill. This is my personal voucher for this man. And uh, two denarii, a denarii is about a day's wage, right? So I don't know, minimum wage just went up now. So, right, 15 bucks an hour, eight. So it's about 100 bucks, right? So this is about two days' wage that this man gives to this innkeeper. And he says, but don't worry. If you need to spend more, spend more. I will come back and I will pay it in full. And Jesus looks at the lawyer and he says, so, of these three, which proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer came and bring himself to say Samaritan. He says, well, the one who showed him mercy, I guess. And Jesus says to him, you go and you do likewise. In the simple yet profound story, Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor? And in this story, he says, your neighbor is anyone whose need you see, whose need you are able to meet. Anyone whose needs you see, whose needs you are able to meet. If you see someone's need and you have the ability to meet them, you are their neighbor. And when Jesus tells us this story, he gives us a few important points, I suppose, about what a neighbor is or is not. A neighbor might be a stranger, a person you've never met before, a person on the side of the road, a person lying beaten in the road. A neighbor might be someone at your school who you haven't had a chance to meet. A neighbor might be someone who lives in your neighborhood. As far as we can tell, the Samaritan did not know this man. As far as we can tell, they were strangers. They had no affinity for each other. They had no common links. In fact, uh, they wouldn't have mixed socially. But the Samaritan saw his need, knew that he had ability to meet those needs, and he acted on it. Last week, we heard from two families that shared of their heart to meet needs of people who are across the ocean, in a completely different country, speaking a language that they may not be familiar with. And these two families, the, the common thread here is they saw a need and they had an ability to meet those needs. A neighbor can also be someone you don't like. Be a racial, be a social, economical, political, we know the Jews hated the Samaritans, and their story, their history is long. They despised them. They wouldn't possibly lift a finger to help them. In fact, some rabbis said a Samaritan is only good to feed the fires of hell. Your neighbor may be 
someone you don't like, someone you don't agree with, someone that you've been raised to say, well, they're less than, they're other, they're marginal. But Jesus says, your neighbor is anyone whose needs you see, whose needs you are able to meet. Your neighbor may be also someone who is completely different from you. They behave differently. They, they dress differently. They, they talk differently. They act differently. Your neighbor might be someone who is ungrateful, who has no thought of paying you back. As far as we know, I mean, the story is just a story, but it ends there. that the, the man who's beaten has no ability to pay the Samaritan back. Your neighbor may be someone who, who never says thank you. Or maybe he's someone who's, who's socially awkward, who will never stroke your ego or your social standings in any way. Because Jesus tells us, your neighbor is anyone whose needs you see, whose needs you are able to meet. But in the story, Jesus also reminds us there's a cost to being a neighbor. Right? Lest we hear a story like this and we say, oh yes, we all want to be great neighbors. We want to be like the good Samaritan. Jesus said, well, let's just pause. Because being a neighbor is costly. It means getting involved with people and spending time with them. It means seeing them and not just seeing them, but being filled with compassion. Understanding the pains that they're going through, understanding the hurts that they're going through, understanding the needs that they're experiencing. It means taking time to see their needs. Notice all, all three people saw, but only one was filled with compassion. It could be financially costly, or it could, it could cost you in other ways. For the Samaritan, not only did he use his own resources, right? he used his own oil and wine, he used his own bandage, he used his own animal, he gave his own money, and he promised to give more money. Being a neighbor is costly. And it might cost you money. It might cost you time. It might cost you other resources. Third, it can be risky to be a good neighbor. Imagine the Samaritan walking into a Jewish city like Jericho. You know, I, I was trying to think of a parallel, and it doesn't work that well because we don't have the same feelings about Samaritans. So imagine this. You're in the Middle East. You're in a, on an American military base and a known terrorist walks into your base, and on his motorcycle, he's carrying a decorated war hero, decorated American war hero. So this known terrorist walks into this American base with this decorated war hero, hero who's half dead. Imagine the treatment he would receive. I mean, people would probably shoot first and ask questions later. It, it, no one would have faulted the Samaritan for just leaving this body or this person outside of the walls of Jericho. But he goes into this Jewish city, risking his own life. Maybe for some of us. We risk physical danger, we risk social dangers, our reputations, our position. But Jesus reminds us, your neighbor is anyone whose need you see whose needs you are able to meet. But some things are easier said than done, aren't they? There are times where we try to love our neighbors, and, and maybe we, we hear a story like this for a little, you know, and a little bit after we're like, yes, yes, we're going to love our neighbors. But after a while, we get frustrated or we get tired. 
right? The guilt of a story like this kind of wears off. And once again, we're driving down the freeway and we ignore the motorist by the side of the road. Because if guilt is all that is motivating us, that well is going to dry up. If religion is the only thing that's motivating us, then that's going to dry up too. For the most religious person, the priest and the Levite, even though it was their job, they were unable to do this out of obligation. You know, every religion has some sort of care for the poor, some sort of charity. And Jesus, doesn't, Jesus tells us it doesn't matter how religious you are, you will be unable to keep this command. Because morality can only take us so far. Guilt can only take us so far. The law, in fact, can only take us so far. Scripture tells us, I delight in the law of God. I, I love the I want to do the law of God, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You might want to do good, but the truth is, guilt will only get you so far, and religion will only get you so far. Obligation will only get you so far. But there's another aspect to the story that is key for our understanding. See, Jesus deliberately tells this story not as a Samaritan that is beaten up. If it was a Samaritan beaten up and a Jewish man went to go help him, all the Jewish listeners would be like, oh, look, we're so great. We're such a good people. But the point of this story is you and I are the person that is beaten up. You and I are the person that's lying on the side of the road, that's been mugged, that's been stripped that is bruised and is dying. And Jesus is the Samaritan. See, what if you were saved completely by grace, through no action on your own, by a force outside of yourself, by a person who owed you nothing, by a person, in fact, that you previously hated? Scripture tells us God shows his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we were enemies with God. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Here's the real lesson of this story. It's not about racism. It's not about doing good. It's about Christ. In Christ Jesus, we haven't experienced a radical kind of love, a radical kind of grace of Christ seeing how we were broken and he reached out and he bound our wounds up. This is ultimately a story about how God saw us beaten and bruised and broken without hope. See, morality had failed us and religion had failed us. The law, as much as you want to just keep the laws, only points out our flaws. And in this mess of our lives, God takes the most costliest of journeys. He leaves heaven for earth. He binds our wounds with his own wounds. He pays our debt, a debt that only he can pay. And he leaves us with the Holy Spirit, and he says, I'm going to come back for you. Don't worry. Until I come back, and I'm so happy that today's um, catechism talks about sanctification. I'm going to come back, and until that day I come back, I'm going to leave my Holy Spirit, and my Holy Spirit's going to work in you, and he's going to heal you, he's going to bind you, he's going to grow you, so that you become the person that you're always intended to be. Friends, only when and if you have experienced the radical love of Christ can you truly love your neighbor. 
You could guilt yourself to love your neighbor, but that'll fade. You could obligate yourself to love your neighbor, but that will fade too. Only until you experience the radical love of Christ will you be truly able to love your neighbors. So a couple things for us to consider as we wrap up. For those of us here in this room, maybe we've never experienced the love of Christ. Christianity has just been a set of rules for us to follow, a thing for us to do on Sunday. But Christianity has never been about experiencing the love of Christ. And let me tell you, if you have not experienced the love of Christ, you do not know what it means to love your neighbor. So would today be the day where you say, Jesus, I am a sinner and I need you in my life. I need you to forgive my sins, to bind my wounds, to call me your own, to let me experience what forgiveness looks like, to let me experience what love is so that I can love others. For those of us here, maybe we are Christians, but we find our hearts not really filled with compassion towards other people. We find it easier to step onto the other side of the road to walk past those who are hurting, even those that we see. And for those of us, we need to remind ourselves of this great salvation we received, that we too once were the beaten, bruised person lying on the side of the road, that Jesus came down and Jesus says, there is nothing good about you, there's nothing that you can offer to me, but I will save you completely by grace. I will save you completely on my own volition. And we need to be reminded that once we too were enemies of Christ, we hated him, and yet he still died for us. And for those of us who have experienced the love of God and those of us who have reminded ourselves that this is the kind of salvation that we have received, you know, there are times we just need to ask God, would you open my eyes to see the needs of those around us? And would you just open my mind to, to think, how can I meet those needs? Maybe for some of us it means our physical neighbors. Right? We're so willing, and I, and I love global missions, but we're so willing to go across an ocean, across a continent, to love those we've never met, and we have such a hard time loving the guy who's literally right next door to you, or the guy who's right across the street from you. Maybe it's for uh, your coworkers or your classmates, and you're like, ah, you know, I don't really know them. They're not in any of my classes. I, uh, yeah, we don't share the same same sports, or we're not in the same work group. I don't have to take the time to listen. Ask God to open your mind and open your heart. Maybe it's someone you see that's always eating by themselves. Or someone you see that just seems sad. Maybe for some of us, it's those inside this church. And we look at a church like this. We're a very large church. We have two services. We have two different congregations. We have a children's ministry upstairs. And there are people who need you. There are people who are desperately needing men and women who know and love Jesus, who share with them the love of Christ. And maybe your role in all this is you say, hey, you know, I can't teach a Sunday school, but I could disciple this one person. I can't teach a Sunday school, or I can't commit to going to youth group, but I'm going to just spend time at lunch with this one person. I'm going to hear about their life. I'm going to pray with them. Maybe for some of us, it's instead of coming to this family reunion lunch, it's, it's, I'm not going to sit with the people I normally sit with. 
I'm going to hear this person's story and see how, how I can pray with them. Because a neighbor is anyone whose needs you see, whose needs you are able to meet. And the question for us today is, will you be a neighbor? Will you be a neighbor to this world, to your world? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we are so grateful, Lord, that you did not leave us by the side of the road. You did not leave us in a pool of blood, beaten, bruised, on the verge of death. But you rescued us out of our despair. You rescued us from our sin, and you paid a debt that only you could pay. God, would you continue to remind us what a wonderful story of salvation each one of us has. For some of us, we, we've forgotten that. We've been in this church for so long, and for some of us, quite honestly, I confess, sometimes I think I deserve salvation because of what I do, but we're reminded that none of us deserves to be made right before you without you. So, Father God, would you cause our hearts to be tender towards you and tender towards your people, that not only would we love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, but we would love the people you have placed in our lives, not just out of obligation, but out of a out of a heart that is transformed by your love for us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We have the offering ushers come forward.